Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. Hello, Sounds True friends, and welcome in this episode of Insights at the Edge. My guests are Tony Schwartz and Kimberly Manns. Let me tell you a little bit more. Kimberly Manns is the CEO of H3 Diversity, a consulting firm that enables leaders to bring their whole selves, head, heart, and hands to the cultivation and creation of inclusive leadership inclusive teams and inclusive organizations. Kimberly's here with Tony Schwartz. Tony, someone I've known for a long time, something like two and a half decades. He's a journalist, a best-selling author, and the founder and CEO of The Energy Project, a consulting firm that helps individuals and organizations more skillfully manage their energy so they can thrive in a world of relentlessly rising demand and complexity. Together, Kim and Tony have created a new audio series with Sounds True. It's called The Reckoning. Why are you who you are and who can you become? And here to start, Tony and Kim, I want to have you address something you say at the very beginning of the reckoning. You say the work of the reckoning is to see more of what you're not seeing and feel more of what you're not feeling. Oh, wow. That's a lot. That's a big, tall order. So if you could tell me each what you mean by that, see what we're not seeing. I mean, there's so much we're not seeing. Feel what we're not feeling. Well, there's a reason I'm not feeling it. Thank you very much. How is this the work of the reckoning? So if you think about, Tammy, childhood development, it happens kind of automatically. And what happens actually is that over time, you see more and you feel more. You're conscious of more. And so that's why if you are a a house, Uh, and you've got a 10-year-old and a five-year-old in it, and you happen to walk down the street to get something, and the house catches on fire, you want the 10-year-old to be in charge, not the five-year-old, because the 10-year-old almost, in almost every single case, is going to be able to see more, and is therefore going to be able to handle it with more skills and more capacity. If it's a 15-year-old and a 10-year-old, same thing applies. You want the 15-year-old instead of the 10-year-old. But the thing is that around 18 or 19 or 20, we hit this moment in our lives where the constant increase in what we can see and in our own growth and development slows, and it slows really considerably. And what happens is that we shift into something we call confirmation bias. So we've spent all these years, as we've been growing up, trying to develop an identity, a sense of who we are. And what what we've discovered is that now we want to be grownups. We're we're tired of being growing ups. You know, what comes to mind when I think about those questions is I think about how Tony and I first met. We met right after the murder of George Floyd. And everybody was grappling with the question of, you know, 
what do you do in this moment? How can I be of service in the moment? How do you actually solve the problems of all the polarities that we're now facing as a society? And I think as he and I started to have the conversation, and it was a much larger group than, than he and I, that it became increasingly clear that at least one of the answers was to help all of us be bigger human beings and therefore better leaders. So how do we help people get beyond their own mental model, which gets us into these either or polarities that we've been experiencing so much in our society lately to expand into something larger that not only allows us to uh, deepen into more of who we are, but then also see more of who each other are and actually see others in ourselves. And so it was this big dream that we had. As, and then we started asking the question, how do we do that? And so it began this long conversation and journey of what would a leadership program look like that really helped individuals see more and be more. Now, of course, you could create a leadership program, each of you on your own, and yet you decided to create the reckoning together. Why? <laughs> yeah, well, actually, originally, uh, we created a version of the reckoning that uh, Kim joined uh, in the pilot version of it. Um, and we were because of what had happened with George Floyd, our original thought was we're really interested in how people uh, grow, can grow and develop on their own. And then suddenly we were faced with a situation where it was so obvious that we needed to be also thinking about this in terms of how people connect with other with others. And we were uh, taking Kim and about uh, a dozen other people through this process. And at a certain point in it, Kim came to us and said, you know, we're starting to talk about race and about identity and about uh, you know, belonging. And essentially she said, she could speak for herself, but essentially she said, you know, you, you can't really do this by yourself. You really don't have uh, the lived experience to be able to reflect back uh, in a way our experience because the group was half people of color, um, in a way that resonates for us, you need to be able to have another perspective in this. Uh, and I think both my daughter Emily and I realized, yep, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so we started talking with Kim about what it would look like if we brought our if we brought the two sets of skills and experiences together. And uh it was off to the races from there. And when it comes to this notion of seeing more and feeling more, I wonder how working together has, if you will, pressurized you both to do that. And if you can share a bit about that. We're both smiling because it's been um, an amazing journey between the two of us. And we've had both these extreme highs and some honestly some lows because of the differences um, in our lived experiences, the differences in our mental models, uh, the differences in how we approach the work. Um, and so there's been a lot of rupture and repair between us, um, all in the service of thinking about what really um, needs to happen in order for us to bring this broad view of what leadership could could look like. So um, not only have we figured out like what do our participants need to see and feel more, we've had to go through the process ourselves individually and with each other. You know, I'd also add, Tammy, that when we when you think about this notion of seeing more, implicitly what we're saying is there's a lot you're not seeing. What is it you're not seeing? You're seeing you're not seeing all the things that it's incredibly uncomfortable to see. You're not seeing all the ways in which you, all the things that you build to protect and defend yourself uh, in the face of the, the internal experience that fundamentally you're not good enough because that's such a universal experience for people to greater and lesser degrees in different ways. And so you get 
a whole range of things, starting with belief systems and mindset and biases and habits and rationalizations, all of these things that are going on inside you, mostly unconsciously, that are determining how you show up in the world, but that you mostly don't realize. So really, seeing more is about embracing all of who you are. It's about the capacity to look at both the, the, the best and the worst of your own instincts and behaviors and to accept all of it. Because the reality is when you can truly embrace all of who you are, you have nothing left to defend. And what a spectacular saving of energy it is not to be spending as much of it in defense. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk a lot more about that. But before we get there, Tony, I want to ask you just a very direct question, which is, did you have to reckon with certain aspects of white male privilege and power as part of even the creation of the reckoning? And how did that process go for you by partnering with Kim and sharing the power of the stage to create this program? Well, it's on that reckoning is ongoing. <laughs> we're, we're, I'm still in that reckoning. Um, you know, I think it was a huge factor and, and remains so. And it's, you know, it's first and foremost, it's about race because race is so inescapably an issue. You know, if you are a person of color, you walk out of your house every morning and the world is going to confront you with the fact that you're a person of color. If you are white and you had my experience you probably walked out of the your house fairly oblivious to the idea that there would be any issue in your walking down the street and showing up in the world. So oblivious, I think, about that would probably describe um, the way I, I, I came to this at the beginning. I, my heart was in the right place. You know, I grew up with a mother who was actually a civil rights pioneer, um, also a, a fem, you know, a very uh, active and well-known feminist. So I grew up in a household where these were issues that we talked about, but that's very different than actually having the experience of dealing with that in the world. And half this group, as I said, were people of color. The person who runs the energy project now is a, a, a woman of color, um, Many of our facilitators are people of color. So this is this is uh, an issue that um, I have felt compelled to engage with uh, a lot. It's not only, though, uh, race. It's also gender. It's age. It's geography. It's um, power, as you say. So, for example, I am the person who you know owns and runs the energy project so by definition there's a power dynamic that's different and i'm constantly in the in the experience of is my concern here kim has referred to the fact that we've had our ups and downs is my mm -hmm. is the way i'm what i'm feeling and the way i'm showing up because um you know is is there is there a part of me that isn't seeing uh, what the impact is of of my you know of my power, um, what the diff what the impact is of being uh, you know white versus black, male versus female, you know older versus younger, yeah, it's um, it's all part of it. One of the ideas that hit me uh, hard in listening to the reckoning was this notion that there's a part of us often that wants to be better than other people, that's comparing ourselves to other people. And that is one of the ways that we quote unquote defend, as you said. And I'd love to understand from both of you how you've gone through the process of identifying, oh, these are the parts of me that are the heavy, 
defenders. And, you know, I mean, I, I've, I just will just bring myself forward in the discussion to share that when I heard that, I go, yeah, like I want to be better than other people. So I don't actually feel how possibly neutrally not very worth much I am. So if I'm better, oh my God, I'm worth a lot. And that's defending from this very vulnerable sense of it's possible I'm not really worth a whole lot. And it's like, oh, wow, that's running so much of my life. That's a kind of reckoning. So I'd like to learn from both of you, what have been the big defender personas, if you will, but they're even more than that. They're kind of character formations that you've discovered are running your lives and how have you gone through a transformation process around that kim you want to go sure um so you know it's an ongoing process of reflection and i was reviewing the audio today and it helped me kind of get back into the space we were uh, when we were uh, taping not too long ago and I was able to remember some of the either or and comparisons that we were journeying through at that time. And we still are <laughs> in this moment. Um, but what I recognize for myself is that there are times where Tony, not intentionally, but because of, I think, maybe even my own stuff, rep replicates experiences of hierarchy and power that have not been great experiences for me. And so even before him, you know, I've had experiences with hierarchy and power that haven't been positive. And so him as a white male who has had this, you know, very long career in this field, um, who has been doing this for a while, um, you know, all these different power dynamics, you know, older than I am, um, has at times replicated an experience that I've had to take a step back from and say, you know, what's coming up for me at this moment um, that I need to take responsibility for. So I know that that's a deep journey of mine. And at times I've had to even take space from the situation in our partnership, just so I can just solely deal with what's happening with me internally versus some of what um, the external exchange of us is replicating. Yeah. You know, better than and less than, it's like a losing game, <laughs> you know, um, because- Or it could be a winning, winning and losing. I mean, that's the whole nature of it, well, better than, yeah, less the than. the thing is, well, exactly. The thing is, it's a losing game because the moment that you begin to feel better than, even if you can marshal evidence that you're, quote, better than, you're at risk of being less than, instantly. So the minute you're on top, in a hierarchical situation, there's a part of you that's worrying that you won't be okay unless you stay on top. So you're always oscillating between better than and less than, and neither one is a secure place to find yourself. Uh, and the other piece of this is that I really do believe, and I know we'll get into this, but I really do believe that our... our you know, we're not a single self. There are, we have multiple parts. Everyone knows this because everyone has had the experience of saying, you know, a part of me right now feels really angry and a part of me is, you know, fine with the way things are going. So we all know that we have these different parts. And I do believe that the most core part of who we are, the what we call the core self, actually isn't never lives in the experience of better than or less than it doesn't worry about its own value it's that we know you know that experience you know that experience if you've had any form of a flow experience where you are just basically one with the experience you're having you're calm, you feel you feel clear you have a sense of compassion that's actually a core state. It's an essential state. The problem is most of the time, the vast majority of the time, you're living in one of your defenders. You're living in a better than or a less than. You're living in an angry part or in a part that withdraws or you're, you're not actually bringing 
all of your capacity to the table because you can't grow and defend at the same time. So just one little more thing about this. If you think about, Tammy, the difference between growth spending and defense spending, and from a governmental perspective, it's a zero-sum game, meaning if you spend $100 million on defense, that's exactly $100 million not available for growth. There's no disputing that. So if, in fact, we're living most of our lives, and unconsciously so, from a defender's perspective, and you can defend yourself in dysfunctional ways, and you can defend yourself in very socially acceptable ways. It, it's a defender if you feel a compulsion to do it. So in a, a high achiever can be from a place of defense. In fact, very often is. A person who's a real giver, who's a caretaker for other people. If that's compulsive, it can be from a socially acceptable place. You can also be an angry person. You can also be a person who drinks in order to numb yourself. So really understanding that the, the parts of you that are in the business of defending are not serving you, uh, they're not allowing you to be the best of who you're capable of being. And let's make this really explicit for people. What are we defending against these defenders? Worthlessness. You know, I'm going to let Kim expound on that. But basically, what's at stake when you are triggered in your life, when you move into a state of fight or flight, when, you know, the stress hormones start to circulate in your body, if you trace it backwards and you ask yourself, what am I so uh, agitated about? It's almost always a threat to your value and worthiness. Yeah. So when I was talking earlier about, you know, you, you had asked what were situations that came up for us during this, where we were able to explore some of our defenders. I was also referring to what Tony's alluding to, which is a framework of what we call the three selves that we introduce as a part of this course, which has this core self that Tony was uh, talking about, which is not a self that has this idea of better than or less than or either or or comparison. Um, but then there's this other self that's a child self that at some point in our lives feels helpless. And so before we have a chance to really connect to what we call our deepest self, the essence of who we are, our core self, many of us have, and I think actually all of us have this experience of being in this child self where we feel helpless. And then our immediate reaction before we really understand the power of the core self is to create what we call, what Tony's referring to as defenders. And so these defenders can show up in very acceptable ways. They can show up as perfectionists. They can show up as people who are caretakers, always there for everybody. And they can show up in very ineffective ways. So people who get very angry and express it in ways that are very unproductive. Um, and so, again, those ways that we get triggered, that we then uh, mistake for all of who we are and our personality is what we call our defenders. And our goal here in this work is to get deep enough into our core self, which doesn't have an either or, or a better than or less than, that is actually able to take each one of those parts, parts of ourself, the child self, the defender, and accept all of them and give them what they need to serve at their highest purpose for us versus being in what we call these unconscious states where there is these either ors and this binary ways of being. Is it fair to say that part of the core journey of the reckoning is to become aware of these defenders and to say, oh, I know what they're doing. I know why they're doing it. And I also think I am starting to sense my inherent worth outside of the defender. And if so, then what I'd like to know from each of you is how did you encounter and know your core self, your core energy? 
was there an initial moment where you were like, oh my, you know, it happened uh, when I was sitting on the meditation cushion. It happened in this inquiry practice. It happened when I took psilocybin, uh, reading this book, or has it just been like a gradual dawning of, oh my God, I think I might be like kind of okay underneath it all. So I'd be curious to hear that from both of you. Well, let me, let me just give credit where credit is due. These are reformulations of ideas that come from internal family systems therapy, uh, right. Dick Schwartz's sure. work. Uh, and Dick I'm sure Schwartz many people are, are recognizing that as we're speaking, and you've taken them and made them very business friendly. So uh, thank you for that. And just also accessible and, and usable. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yes. So, so I was introduced to this conceptually through Dick's work. Um, but I'd say for me, per, per, perhaps one of the most life-changing moments was actually a cognitive insight. And it was a, an experience of waking up one morning. I'm, I'm almost making it sound like a, I mean, it almost felt like a epiphany. And it dawned on me that all of the worst things that people had ever said about me, no small number, um, or that I'd said about myself, which was an even bigger number, were not only true, but they were truer than I could bear to tolerate. But they weren't all that was true. And that there was a part of me that could actually look at that, those, those aspects of me, what I now call defenders, and recognize that they were that they weren't the whole story and i think a lot of people live in the experience of their defenders assuming that it's reality most of us look out in the world and we think what we see is reality but in fact it's only a slice of reality it's the reality that we have created for ourselves in large part to be able to move forward in the world you know, if you think about the Enneagram, which most folks listening to this uh, are familiar, most most folks listening to this are familiar with it, but this personality typing system that posits that there are nine different types that characterize human beings. And we have recognized that there are actually nine defenders. There are nine different ways, the Enneagram type types, that people define themselves in order to get the feeling of value and love that to one degree or another they don't have. So for me, in beginning to actually see that these defenders were out there, it helped me to also see that somebody had to be seeing that. There had to be another part that was seeing that. And as I began to experience that, and I want to tell you, Tammy, that it's it takes a long time. We can introduce the idea that there's a core self, but the actual direct experience of it, it's really, it takes a long time before most people begin to tune into it. And there's no bell that rings that can tell you this is it. It is just a felt sense. But over time, I began to notice that. And I began to notice that when I was feeling that, its relationship to my defenders was one of protection, was one almost of parenting. It was like the core self will step in and begin to take over from the defender the role it's felt compelled to play, but isn't really well equipped to play. Because can you give me a can you give me a concrete example, Tony? Give me a concrete example from your life. So my, you know, one of my one of my primary defenders is anger, um, is certainty. I'm an eight on the Enneagram, which is the the boss. Um, and if I feel a sense of threat or danger, my first impulse is to is to try to take control of the situation and simultaneously to push away the feelings of vulnerability and potentially of weakness 
And as Kim was saying, that feeling of vulnerability or weakness is the feeling of a child. The child is, in fact, defenseless. And if the child is left alone or isn't fed or is treated badly, the child really doesn't have any recourse. That's why the defender shows up. But the defender shows up to protect the child at an early age itself. You know, I think if you ask most people when they're in a defender, so I'm feeling really angry right now, how old are you? They will not tell you their own age. What they'll tell you is nine. 11, seven, what they'll, what they'll realize is that there are actually children in grown-ups' clothing. They're little soldiers. We have a bunch of little soldiers in, our, in us that jump in to help. Now, when the self comes into play, so you ask me, you know, what happens? Well, when the self comes into play, the self doesn't have a fear about its own value. The self can embrace, the self can feel compassion. So the self can act in much the same way that a parent would if a child fell off a jungle gym and was bleeding and screaming and needed to be comforted. The adult, the core self, the older, the, the you know, the part of you is capable of taking care of your child taking care of your vulnerabilities in an entirely different way. So then it becomes okay for somebody like me to acknowledge, which I can now, <laughs> I can acknowledge those feelings of weakness or vulnerability without feeling I'm going to die. Now, it does depend on the stress level I'm living in, but it's part of my repertoire now where it was not before. And Kim, what about you, the discovery of this core self energy? What's been your journey with that? I would say that, you know, all of us probably, including myself, have had glimpses of the core self all throughout life. These times where you kind of feel like you're in a flow and you don't know how to name it, but it feels like something greater than than yourself that, that you're operating in. Um but it really hasn't been until the past few years um, that I've gotten acquainted with kind of somatic work and internal family systems that I've been able to more skillfully be have my consciousness directed at the core self where I now identify or much more frequently can identify that that's my true self. Because before I would feel glimpses of it, but I just thought, okay, that's just a part of me. But then I would equally identify with parts of me that were like, sad from from bad experiences or parts of me that needed to plan everything that were now I understand are parts of me that I formed for important reasons to defend myself. And so really, um, my journey of liberation from these defenders has been more skillfully managed and more thoughtfully um, created over the past few years that I've been able to almost go through an identity change to say, oh, okay, this is really who I am. And so I have a much better sense of the essence of who I am. And really these tools have been transformational for me. When you say somatic work, can you be explicit? What are you doing? What are you feeling? How has that shifted things for you? Well, I would say, um, you know, trauma lives in your body for the most part. And so I spent a long period of my life running from being associated with my body. And it wasn't until I got introduced to somatic work, which helped me separate from just um, identifying with my emotions and the cognitive part of my intelligence that I was able to almost expand an understanding of who I was into my entire body and create spaciousness into who I was. So specifically something as simple as this exercise of like, having my hands go open up like this and being able to identify with the fact that these are my hands and being able to understand that in these hands are the experiences of not only my current self, but my three-year-old self, my teenage self, my and being able to literally feel all those parts of myself as I just do something simple like this. So the somatic work is really deepening into uh, this experience of your body as a place of safety, which, which I didn't have for, for a long time. And so I would say those exercises on a daily basis has really helped strengthen and deepen um, 
the spaciousness within me to have some separation. And I feel like all this work is about just getting just a little bit of separation from what we've identified in the past, whether it's emotions, whether it's our um, intellect, whether it's these, these, our race, our gender, just getting just a little bit of space to be able to say, okay, that's a part of me, but that's not all of me. And what does that part of me need in order to be expressed in the, in the fullest, deepest way? Um, and so it's sometimes it's a little bit hard until you actually experience it, but that core self really does have the ability to offer compassion and courage and curiosity to all these parts of us that we thought just were completely who we were um, enough so that they can be kind of liberated into their fullest and greatest selves. Okay, let me see if you, you two can help me uh, make a connection here for a moment, if that's okay. Because when I hear something like The Reckoning, just, you know, that title, I think, okay, I'm getting older and I am getting older. Uh oh, we all are. And there's this sense of like, did I live my true, genuine heart's life, my soul's life, you know, or did I live, did I live uh, my true life? Uh, you know, my, the, my real, so what's the connection between this true person we want to be like the reckoning, like, come on, help me sort this out. I don't want this false self. The false self is quote unquote, are these defender personalities? How do you see that? I don't see the defenders as false personalities, by the way. Um, and in fact, the self itself, the core self doesn't really have personality. I almost prefer to think of it as an energy. You have self-energy, but the it, it's not highly, in the core self, it's not highly differentiated. It doesn't have, for example, an agenda. It doesn't have, you know, personality characteristics. It has a healing desire. It has a, uh, you know, it has an equanimity. But so the, the defenders um, as you do this work, what you're really trying to connect with is that they were there, they're not to be hated and to be dis disdained and to be run over. They were there for only one reason, to help you. They were there to help you. And by the way, it was an unfair demand on them because they weren't equipped to do that job. They stepped in and took on that burden because relative to the child, your child self's ability to deal with it, they had at least more capacity. So the reckoning is really the shift, Tammy, I'll make it in a way very simple. It's the shift from our largely external orientation in the world. How are we doing with other people? How are we achieving or not achieving? Do we have the right relationships? Are we measuring up to a turn inside in which you're asking yourself those fundamental questions that are part of the title of uh, this audio series? You know, why are you the way you are? Because all of these defenders, all of who you are, you developed for a reason. And we don't usually think about that. So you developed the way you did for a reason. And then the question becomes, you know, who can you become when you begin to do what Kim was talking about, which is get a little space from these defenders, these definers of you. Who can you become? Or another way of putting that would be, what do you really want? So in coaching, for example, the primary question I'm asking my coaches is what do you really want? What do you want apart from what you think you should be, from what you've been expected to be, from what you think will keep you safe, from what will make you respectable? So that's that second piece of the puzzle. You know, who could you become if you actually allowed yourself to accept what you really want and go for it. And then finally, what's standing in your way? That's the reckoning, Tammy. That's the reckoning. And most people don't reckon. Why? 
because it's too painful. Why? Because if you start to think about all those ways in which you things you protected yourself from feeling, that again, collect around worthlessness and not being good enough, it feels too painful. So people turn away from it, you know, for in a thousand ways. We have a thousand ways of doing that. But I love the provocativeness of the reckoning. And the people I admire most in the world, um, and Kim is one of them, through all this stuff, Kim is one of them. And why is Kim one of them? Because she freaking reckons. I know that this is a person who will not accept that, oh, it's just that way. That's just me. If it's not working for her, she's going to look into it. And I have a handful of people in my life for whom that's really true in an everyday sense. So the reckoning is an act of bravery. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful, Tony. You know, uh, when you were talking about why we don't do it and how painful it is, you know, Kim, I, I wrote down something you teach in the series, which is 75% of our brain developed by age three, 90% of our brain developed by age five. And I mean, I think that was the moment when I was like, no way, you know, I, that's a, a whole lot of formation before I even really had a say in what was going on and what was going on uh, in that family context, there was a lot of dysfunction as is true for many of us. And 90% of our brain was formed, but we have to reckon with that is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I like to bring up that statistic because I want people to have so much compassion for themselves and others about how much of us is hardwired before what you say happens, where we actually have the agency uh, to support and take care of ourselves. And so that if, if in an early childhood stage, you're dealing with any type of toxic stress, then that actually changes the way your brain is formed and the way your neurons connect and the complexity of which your brain is able to develop. So there's like scientific research behind why there's those first zero to five years are so important. But the, mo the most interesting thing is what buffers that pain and really helps your brain develop is having positive relationships with adults that care for you. And so what we're doing here with the reckoning is really teaching how do you reparent yourself in the places where you weren't able to have access to that loving and caring support for whatever reason, Many of us have had parents that, you know, maybe did the best that they can, or maybe we didn't have parents that did the best that, that they could, but all of us at some point or the other have to go through that process of reparenting part of ourselves that didn't get the love and the care that, that, that it needed in order to not be so defensive um, and to not be so reactive. And so all of us have to have compassion for why we are the way that we are, but it is possible to recreate those connections at any age. Um, it just takes a lot of persistence and a lot of kind of deepening into the core of who you are. You know, I'd add to that, um, that implicit in what him just said is trauma is normative. Trauma is not the exception. The experience, the terrifying experience that your needs are not going to be met is a universal experience. It's built into the fabric of your growth from the time, you know, from that period where you are helpless. And there are times when your needs are not going to be met, no matter how wonderful your caretakers are. And that legacy that you carry inside you is what we need to reckon with. And until we acknowledge that it's happened, you cannot change what you do not notice. So noticing is a, is a profound starting place. And to notice, you have to be willing to notice all of it, because otherwise you're back in the protecting censoring game. So I really feel like it's a gift to people to help them see that it's not 
that they went off the rails. They did what happens by being human beings. And being human is incredibly difficult, period, full stop. It's hard and it does have pain in it. And if you look at the time we're in, because the reckoning that we're talking about, we've brought to the world in 2022, 2023, and we have coming at us more demands, disruptors, you know, uncertainties, um, fears than we've ever had in our lives. And, you know, I've been around a long time. Tammy, you've been around a long time. And, you know, I find this unprecedented. You know, I took a break today in the middle of the day from the regular work I was doing, and I just started flipping through the internet. And I went on to, you know, either the Washington Post or the New York Times. And there's a little article saying, in five years, 98% chance that we're going to have a radical increase in temperature in the planet. Not in 20 or 30 years, not, you know, maybe someday, but in five years, that's just one little piece of the day I spent, but it's monumental. And it feels as if there are tons of those impositions on our life at this point. So I remember meeting Ram Das back in 1975. And, you know, I, maybe I was listening to him give a talk or maybe I was interviewing him, but he said, you know, we're going to need people who are able to stay regulated in a very, very difficult, stressful world. The reckoning is also about how do you regulate yourself in the face of very, very challenging circumstances? And when you do, when you can regulate yourself, when you can tap into that core self, it's contagious. You know, in the energy project, we call it the chief energy officer. You're a chief energy officer. You're a chief energy officer for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. So when you can radiate some of those feelings, you are having an, uh, an impact that's much bigger than just you. And as you're talking about the time we're in, Tony, it makes me aware and just your partnership, you and Kim working together makes me aware of this, the collective reckoning that we're in as a human species. So yes, we're, we're having to face the pain of our individual early childhood dysfunction and how we reacted to that, but humans are in the midst of having to confront the horrible mess we've created. Uh, and so I'm curious what you think that connection is of developing these reckoning skills at the individual level and what we're faced with collectively. So it makes me think of an Audre Lorde quote that says you can't um, dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. And basically what she's saying is we can't use the same ways of being and thinking if we want to create something new. And so what I view right now with all this grappling with each other and all this polarization is a need not just for new policies to address the issues that we have, but a new way of being so that we can get to the complexity of policies that we need to address the complexity of issues that we have today. And I believe that our current ways of being and our current mental models um, that really, really, at least in the Western world, really identifies with our cognitive intelligence is just not what's going to help us move into the future in a productive way. Yeah, I, I think another way to think about this, to pick up on what Kim's saying is that we have an operating system inside us that is inadequate to the tasks that we're being asked to the challenges we're being asked to address. So, you know, again, part of the reckoning is the upgrading of the operating system. It's literally being able to say, this is why that Audrey, Audrey Lord quote is so apt is, you know, the, the, you know, the way we've been doing things is not going to be the vehicle through which we transform. And, that involves a lot of uh, of dismantling, and that involves a lot of uh, you know re reimagining um, the possible. 
Um, so it, it, if you think of it just in the terms Kim meant, started to mention a moment ago, we tend to think that we can operate by one center or one form of intelligence, which is cognitive. Like that's the highest level you can reach when you're logical and rational. That's what Piaget said is what you're trying to get to, formal operational thinking. And when you get there, the smartest guy in the room is the person, it's usually the guy who's getting that role. The smartest guy in the room is the person who gets the prize and gets to run the show. But actually there are multiple other centers of intelligence that we've drawn on as a culture much, much less. Three of them, just as an example, are the intelligence of the heart. So what is the what is that feeling state? Because we started out this conversation talking a lot about, well, what about seeing more and feeling more? So what does the heart bring to this in terms of relationship? What about the body? Because the body, not only does it is it the repository of trauma, as Kim was pointing out, but it's also the repository of wisdom. You know, the mind can move from rational to rationalizing very easy, very easily. So the mind can become, instead of a, a, your, your a friend, it can become your distorter and it can tell, make up stories. The body is, a, in, a, in effect, an, a potential antidote to that, because if you are calm, if you are regulated, the body will tell you what's true, that the gut feeling, the instinct, the intuition, those are all real forms of intelligence. They don't have language the way the mind does, which gives it an unfair advantage, but they're it's a very powerful source of intelligence. And finally, the spirit. I'm aware of when I sort of sort through those four centers of intelligence, the spirit is a powerful piece of what I draw on to move through the world. Because the spirit for me is about what about the greater good? What about that which is beyond me that I need to be taking into account? What about when I step away from my own self-absorption? What am I here to serve? And I know that's something that you that you can certainly resonate with in, in, your, in your own work. So there's four centers of intelligence, which in the reckoning, we're almost introducing people or reintroducing them to their existence, or three of the four we're reintroducing, because we tend to devalue three of the four. And, you know, I think most people have an intuitive, ready connection, at least. They understand when you say the intelligence of the heart. Their heart may be closed, they may not want to feel what's there, but they know what you're talking about. Bodily intelligence, you know, gut instincts, I think people know what you're talking about there too. They may be disembodied, they, et cetera, but they still know what you're talking about. Then when you say, I think this quote unquote spiritual intelligence, I imagine that there's a lot of like question marks out there and kind of mouths that are going, what? What are you talking about? So, Kim, I wonder if you can say a little bit more about what is that for you? Mm. Yeah, this is the one that we try to be the most broad about in our um, trainings, our leadership programs, because it really varies from person to person. Like some people identify it as God, some as universe, some as um, energy. <laughs> and so... It's really kind of what Tony alluded to for me, which is what I deepen into to understand my highest self and my highest purpose. And so um, anytime I'm in a place where I'm feeling triggered, I'm feeling stuck, I try to move to a, just a deeper self inside of me that has an understanding and an intuition of like, what is my higher purpose that I'm seeking after so I can answer the question like, What's my next step based on where I'm really trying to move towards? So it's just like this constant guide that I always have access to that if I can remember, can really give me the, the wisdom and the intuition in the moment to make sure that I'm moving toward a higher purpose um, and in my perspective, a higher power. What, what does that mean? Serving? What am I oh. serving? That's a good question. And Kim, what do you mean when you say a higher power? Uh, well, we kind of talk about this in The Reckoning, which is um, a power that comes from within us 
that when matched with our, with our external power can do the best service to the world and to others. And so there is an internal power that we all have that again, doesn't have the either or better than less than that really is in the highest service of ourselves and others that we leverage appropriately with the external power we have, whether it's our positions, whether it's our race, um, gender, other identities um, can really do the best good in the world and the best service to others. So for me, the highlight of our conversation so far uh, was when Tony was talking about you, Kim, and he <laughs> very excitedly said, she freaking reckons. And I thought to myself, how oh, that's interesting. Like, what would be the characteristics, the qualities, the requirements to be somebody who freaking reckons? Like, what does it mean to be that person? And I think that might be a good note for us to end on, if you can both comment on that and maybe think of people you know who are, you know, reckoning heroes and heroines, if you will, courageous reckoners. What are, what are they like? What do they do? Yeah, so that, um, despite any differences that we have, that's where me and Tony really align in that admiration and respect for each other's own path. <laughs> and, you know, Tony doesn't have to be reckoning right now, given where he is in life and given what he's accomplished, but there is something inside of him that wants to keep going down that journey. So that's something I've always been kind of astounded by. <laughs> to but what does that mean? Way. What does that mean, Kim? Yeah. Can you explain more? Um, what does that mean? It's um, it's the it's courage. It's the courage to look within and say, what am I responsible for in this moment? Yes. It's saying, this is, there might be something on the outside that's causing my reaction, but there's, it's mirroring something internally that if I dig deep enough and I love hard enough, um, we'll stop reacting. <laughs> you know, I will get enough spaciousness to be able to offer love not only to ourselves and to others. Um, and that's really what we're trying to get to is enough space inside of ourselves to where, as Tony says, we have nothing left to defend. And so what people get from us is the core self um, as a reflection. So they're able to get to love and compassion and courage from within us that to support themselves. Yeah, and so I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of mine, which is a lot of similarity to Kim's. She used the word responsibility the other word that occurs to me is ownership. Um, are you willing to own it? Are you willing to own all of it? You know, the, the beautiful and the, and the ugly, you know, the good, the bad, and the whatever that phrase is. Um, you know, so ownership, which, as I've said, and as she's now said, is an act of courage, because it doesn't feel comfortable a lot of the time to own it. It's such a big part of it. The other part that I think is, um, actually being able to step past your own stuff. So it sounds ironic when we've been talking all about dealing with your stuff, but ultimately it has to have a, a higher purpose. Ultimately, uh, you know, at this stage in my life, I'm more acutely aware than I have ever been that really it comes down to what am I, how am I adding value in the world? How, you know, and it doesn't mean I have a measuring stick that says, if I'm not adding this much, it's not okay. It means is my intent, my core intent, what I wake up in the morning committed to, to try to add value in the world. And my way to add value in the world is to share this knowledge about reckoning. Um, there are lots of ways to be of service in the world, but in, ab in the absence of it, what you're missing from the ingredients you need to live at the best and highest level, you're missing meaning. Because I don't have the question, Tammy, when I wake up in the morning, why am I here? I got it. 
I know why I'm here. And it's not about me. I've been speaking with Tony Schwartz and Kimberly Manns. They've joined together and the effort and earnedness of their work together is the reckoning itself as they teach about the reckoning. It's so beautiful how you can feel that in the audio teaching series that you've created. The Reckoning, Why Are You Who You Are and Who Can You Become? It's a beautiful seven session audio series. Thank you both so much for your uh, deep commitment, deep commitment to uh, be of service and to be true. Thank you. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in after the show Q&A conversations with featured presenters, and have the chance to ask your questions, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community that features premium shows, live classes, and community events. Let's learn and grow together. Come join us at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds True, waking up the world.